0: Have you missed me? It's been five weeks nearly since my last episode got released. My apologies, guys. I have not forgotten about you, all. I haven't. I miss you guys just as much as you miss me. But I've got a good reason to it, though, unfortunately. It's been good. Very exciting stuff has been going on i've been moving house i've been getting a new job but the most important thing you don't care about all that sort of pesto shit that i've got to deal with the most important thing is the walk the line podcast has been picked up by a radio station oh that's right we are going to the big leagues now we've been picked up by a radio station called voices uk they are based in london in the inc- awesome part of london called king's cross brand new radio station. They're up and coming. They're absolutely nailing it right now with all different kinds of shows, all different kinds of music genres. So guys, go and check it out. We will be live there on Thursday. I think it's the 16th of this month, July at 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. UK time, just in case my American listeners are listening. So guys, I will probably be I don't know, I'll be plugging this like crazy over the next few weeks anyway. So yeah, there we go. So it's exciting stuff, exciting stuff. So anyway, let's get back to this episode. Now, I want you to do us a favor. I want you to cast your mind back to episode five, What The link Podcast, season two, episode five, with an amazing woman called Gia Vertz. Now you're wondering, why are you talking about a previous episode? Well, Gia was obviously uh, a director of the incredibly hard-hitting documentary called Conviction and this was actually a documentary about a, a gentleman who got sent down to prison for a wrongly committed crime. 16 years he was in jail for and he was 16 years old to got sent down for 16 years for something he didn't do. Now there's a lot of uh, um, bad practices from a lot of different avenues in this. We didn't really go much into it with Gia but Saying that, we now have that gentleman, Jeffrey Deskovich, is on the podcast now. He is going to be our guest today. He goes into detail about what happened, why it happened, why all this evidence wasn't shown. The DNA was wrong. The courts and the the system itself was so flawed and ridiculous. He should never have went down. How many times his appeals got denied because they were just rubber stamping it and not actually looking at it. And how he's actually left prison, got himself a law degree and doing amazing stuff by actually trying to stop this from happening to other people. People have been wrongly convicted, trying to get them out and letting them have their voice heard. It's an amazing and inspirational story from Jeffrey. Hope you guys like it. Please check it out, share it with your friends, send it over, subscribe, add it to the playlists, I don't know, shout it from the rooftops about it. Let's get some uh, uh, recognition for this uh, amazing and inspirational gentleman. So guys, without further ado, please welcome jeffrey Deskovich. so we are here with jeff jeffrey thanks so much for uh taking time out your probably busy day to come and join us thank you very much for this Absolutely. Thank you for uh, having me on your platform as well. appreciate it. Now, the people who are listening to this, um, you probably cash your mind back to, I think it's episode five of the podcast we've got here, season two. And we were actually uh, had the pleasure of having uh, Gia Wertz on here. And she had uh, a documentary which was uh, called Conviction. Now, the documentary was about um, someone who's wrongly committed for a crime they didn't commit. And this person was uh, a excuse me, Jeffrey Doskovich. and we have Jeffrey on the podcast now. So if you haven't heard the podcast with uh, Gia, get, go back and listen to that, and then come back and listen to this one, get a bit more uh, clarity on that. And uh, we're now going to go into a little bit more detail about, um, obviously, Jeffrey's story and uh, and what he's doing now. He's doing some great things, and his the way that he's really kind of persevered through the life and troubles and all that sort of stuff. I hope you don't mind going into a bit of detail about this, Jeff. Yeah,
1: sure. Uh, so, to recap, as you mentioned, uh, I served 16 years in prison from uh, age 17 to 32. Got arrested when I was 16, lost the trial at the time of 17, was wrongfully convicted of murder and rape. The wrongful conviction was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, terrible public defender. Uh, I was given a 15 to life sentence, I lost seven appeals, I got turned down for parole and ultimately I was exonerated through further DNA testing. And I've gone on to become an, an, an advocate and uh, I have a foundation called the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice and uh, I'm also a lawyer. And I have this mission in life of freeing wrongfully convicted people and pursuing policy changes and for broader justice reform. And as you correctly point out, uh, I am the target, I am the subject rather of uh, the documentary short on Amazon Prime, uh, created and directed by Gia, where it's called "Conviction."
0: I'm not going to lie to you; that's probably the, the, the there's so much information in that, statement. It was ridiculous. So, what I want to do, I want to do, I want to, I want to peel it all back. Let's go back to the initial. So, you were 16 years old. You got wrongfully convicted of this crime. I mean, what was the what? Tell us a little bit about this. I mean, what was the the crime itself? If you don't mind talking about it, what was the crime itself, and why did you go? Why did he kind of hone on it in on you for this crime?
1: Sure. So I was sixteen when I was arrested. Uh, the crime was uh, murder and rape of a high school classmate. She was in two of my classes as a freshman. One as a sophomore. I uh, knew her name. She knew mine. That was really uh, the extent of it. I got on the police radar because I was quiet into myself, and some of those students, when interviewed by the police, told them that they might want to speak to me. Uh, they interpreted my being a sensitive teenager as being some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for what I had done. And they also got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which claimed to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator in it. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So for about six weeks, the the police played this cat and mouse game with me, where half the time they would speak to me as a suspect, and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like, "The kids won't talk freely around us; they will around you." Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. So. You know, there, that, that's how I fell for that dynamic came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. So I began to look up to the officer pretending to be the good cop as a father figure. And so uh, after getting me to agree to take a polygraph, uh, I the next day I went to the police station for the, where I thought the test was. Uh, it was a school day. So my mother and grandmother uh, thought I was in school. They drove me from town of Peekskill, or city of Peekskill, rather, which is in Westchester County, uh, across county lines, 40 minutes away by car, to town of Brewster in Putnam County. Uh, So that meant I was dependent upon the police. Uh, There were three officers who came there with me from Peekskill, but then there was also the polygraphist, who was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed like a civilian. He never told me that he was a cop, he never read me my rights. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. Uh, They gave me a four-page brochure which explained how the polygraph worked, but then it had big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, I'm there to help the police, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. And from there, they put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he attached me to the polygraph machine, and then he launched into his third-degree tactics. He raised his voice at me. He I made my personal space and kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Wow. But yeah, towards the end, he said, what do you mean? You didn't do it. You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear to the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm him harm me, but that he had been holding them off but couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he said, uh, look, just tell them what they want to hear and you'll go home afterwards. You will not be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just being concerned about my safety in the moment, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else did either loomed very large in, in, in my mind. Uh, then it was this, you know, the possibility of harm, this false life preserver. So I made up a story based on the information they gave me in the course of the interrogation. By the time it was all said and done, I collapsed on the on, uh, on the floor in the fetal position, crying uncontrollably.
0: Jesus.
1: Uh, and uh, obviously I was arrested. I was charged with the murder and rape.
0: So, so they basically the, 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 the police kind of coerced you. They, they kind of manipulated you in this really, isn't it?
1: They coerced me and they manipulated
0: me, yeah. But did they actually have any physical evidence towards you? No. That they did, They were just basically bullying you into confessing.
1: That's right. You understand. Yeah. And it wasn't videotaped. It was not audio tape. No signed confession. Just their word for it. And so when they came to court, they left the threatened false promise out of their story.
0: Wow. So what was, why did you think Going Looking back at it now, or even at the time, why do you think that you were the one that was really the one that was kind of singled out on this? And why do you think they had to get a conviction so much they had to do this sort of tactic?
1: I think I was – I'm not sure why they – I mean, other than what I mentioned to you already, that's how I got on their radar, but I I don't – I do think they were just – they were just looking to arrest somebody just to make it look like they solved the crime.
0: So do you think it was a pressure from, obviously, external, like from the hierarchy and obviously- Yeah, obviously definitely. Like well, I mean, you know, there
1: were- Definitely, yeah. Well, I mean, there was, you know, there were town hall meetings held, giving safety tips and and uh, giving updates on the investigation. And, you know, they had the state police breathing down their neck also, you know, so that was another additional public pressure.
0: Yeah, so obviously this was a, a huge thing in the area. So there were obviously, as you can imagine, they were probably getting- uh, a lot of um, uh, media attention as well, probably. Yes. I, would, I would imagine that would, yes, would they even were. go international as well. So, yes. But as you say, it doesn't give them excuse to kind of jump on right. someone who I would not, don't, don't want to be disrespectful for that, but someone who was basically innocent and didn't really know anything, to be fair. It's true. No, it's true. Uh, I was
1: 16. I didn't understand. I was completely over my head. They overreached me, no, no question about it.
0: So, so. Moving on from that, you you, you got convicted. Uh, what during the court hearing? There obviously did, your defence obviously was there. Did they mention anything about this? Did the judge take this into account? Did the was there any sort of like kind of should I, uh, um, well, I was gonna say any backup for yourself regarding the court?
1: Well, I mean the DNA test didn't match me, but the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud, and he claimed that they claimed oh I forgot to document medical evidence that showed the victim had been promiscuous so you know he made that up he trashed her reputation in order to wrongfully convict me uh the prosecutor uh, took it a step further and uh named someone by name that he claimed had, had had slept with the victim but he never had a dna test performed in order to prove that he never he didn't even call him as a witness and essentially my public defender didn't defend me he never called my alibi as a witness uh, he never explained to jury significance, of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to challenge the confession. He, he never tried to discredit this medical examiner. Uh, he rarely met with me. Uh, and lastly, uh, the interrogation was not videotaped or audiotaped. There was no signed confession. It was just his their word for it. And when they came to court, they left out that threat and false promise. And my lawyer wouldn't allow me to testify at the hearing. And so it, it added all up. Yeah, uh, I, you know, in reality when you defend the case was a false confession you have to answer that confession you have to explain it you have to courtless. disprove it and bring it together your closing argument but he didn't do any of that and as a result of that i was uh, wrongfully convicted and given a 15 to life sentence
0: so the people who are in charge of your your court case how many of them are still got a job right now because hopefully not any of them <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the lieutenant uh, the lieutenant who oversaw everything, I mean, he became the police chief based in part of my case, and they stayed with him as the police chief for six or seven years wow. uh, a- after I was exonerated, but he-, he retired, the other officers retired, and the trial judge recently
0: uh, uh, retired as well. Jesus, so they kind of, I don't want to say they got rid of it, scot-free sort of thing, but... Something they have to live. They did. With. They, no, no. I'll say it for you. They did. They did get. Did they they got away go, with it. They got away with it. Got no repercussions or anything like that. No,
1: there's no civil repercussions. No criminal repercussions. No, nothing.
0: Jesus, it shows you. It shows you about how ah, everyone says about the kind of criminal justice system. The modern day justice system is the best that it's ever been. But you get you get things like your case. It just it, it makes a mockery of everything, really, doesn't it? It really, it really does. Sure,
1: I mean, if that was a civilian that broke the law, I'm pretty sure the cops would have arrested them right away. Of course, you know, but, it, but there would have been uh, harsh penalties. But uh, because it was, you know, law enforcement, they got away with it.
0: I said uh, the thing. This, well, they say, but this is the new thing about the police having different rates and different laws towards them and all that sort of stuff that's a different conversation we could probably go down and this podcast will probably be about five hours long if you want to go down that road to be honest so let's carry on going forward so you've been convicted you're sitting here you're only 16 years old you've been convicted and how long was the conviction for yeah so
1: I was 16 when I was arrested you're right but I did turn 17 before the trial started so I was convicted at 17 and and, uh, you know, uh, the I was sentenced to 15 to life, which oh. meant I had to do 15 years minimal. And then uh, I could appear in front of the parole board for consideration of, you know, discretionary release on parole. So I wound up doing an additional year. Uh, and uh, you know, I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole because I maintained my innocence rather than express remorse and take responsibility. Ultimately, I was exonerated through further DNA testing, which not only... Uh, re- uh exonerated me but also identified the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime he killed a second victim uh, It was uh, three and a half years later was a school teacher and who had two children
0: so he basically just as I say he, he committed crime he committed murder again that's the only way he yes. did it so, so you you, why was you said you went through so many appeals why was every single appeal thrown out what happened with that
1: yeah. So there's a, a lot of times the, the judges just rubber stamp deny appeals, you know, really? it is reflectively, you know, rather than giving a really close critical look. I mean, there was oh, yeah. plenty of red flags around my case. There's plenty of good arguments made on my behalf. Like I was innocent Definitely. based on the DNA and that uh, the police violated my uh, fifth amendment right against self-incrimination and that the trial was unfair and unreliable in five, five ways to Sunday. But, uh, you know, they just rubber stamped de- denied it, and and that that sadly happens uh, many times. The average length of wrongful incarcerations fourteen years, and by the time most people are exonerated, their appeals have long since been exhausted. So, in that aspect of it, really, my case was not uh, all that unusual. You know,
0: it was just like a generic sort of like kind of yeah, whatever, just just to kind of pass yes. it. out. yeah, just get out the system, sort of thing, get out, get off the judge's desk, if so to speak.
1: Yeah, sure. I I felt like that.
0: Yeah. God, just you must have been. I mean, what were you, going through that sort of time? I mean, what was it like for yourself? being a young kid in that sort of like kind of avenue and that sort of like kind of environment. Um, were you were you inside like a, a, an adult prison? You said you were seventeen. Were you? I in was an, an adult,
1: adult person. Yes, I was.
0: So you're basically surrounded by, God knows what sort of like kind of people in society. You know, you were right. slap Sure, I was surrounded by around.
1: fully. F- I was. I was surrounded by fully formed adults, many of whom were guilty of serious violent crimes. So Jesus. it was very dangerous. It was, you know, plenty of stabbings or cuttings there and other violence. And, you know, the guards were, uh, just, you know, guards were very verbal abusive and, uh, the food was terrible. Sometimes it was burned. Other times it wasn't fully, uh, cooked. I was beat up six or seven times in the course of my 16 years. One time I nearly lost my, uh, life. Uh, I, uh, most I did the time mostly by myself. I mean, my, uh, my mother was my only consistent visitor. My grandmother used to come with her, but then she passed away while I was incarcerated. Uh, last five, six years, I was lucky if my mother came and see me once every uh, six months. I had several sets of aunts and uncles. they come visit, disappear, come visit, disappear, and repeat that every three years. My brother's three and a half years younger than me. He came three times in 16 years, not at all in the last decade. And that was it. So in a lot of ways, I really did the time uh by myself.
0: By yourself, sort of thing. I mean, looking Hopefully. back, we're talking about your family and stuff like that. What was the the kind of well, I hope oh, we don't mind me kind of going into it, but what was the, the kind of uh, the, the the how can I put it like what was their thoughts on the whole thing? You know, you're obviously claiming innocence and all that sort of thing. Were they sticking by you or were they just like were they up in arms? They just didn't know or Who's this? Who? Well, the, you, you, you said your family they came. Somewhere. Yeah, no,
1: they believe me. Well, they believed me, but yeah. their belief did not translate into them trying to assist me. You know, they didn't keep in regular contact with me, and there was several times my mother used to make the rounds and see if yeah. you know everybody would put in a, re, a, a manageable amount of money, and they combined, we could hire an attorney. But you know, that never,
0: just that, never
1: that never, that never, did, that didn't happen. No.
0: So, so we're getting to the. The 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 time when you got released, you said it was sixteen years. Did you get released yes. through parole, or did you get released because no. of new evidence?
1: Because of new evidence.
0: Right, and that you the mentioned, DNA Remember, they took the DNA right. that
1: already didn't yeah. match me, put in the data bank, and it matched the actual perpetrator. And so that was a dish, that was new evidence that wasn't known before.
0: So when you get told, tell us that day that you get told that this has happened now, you've been wrongly convicted. What was your what was your feelings around about there?
1: Well, my lawyer came to see me and she told me that the testing had been done and that it that it matched the actual perpetrator and that I would be going home tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm not. So, is and that we quick? is so it's literally the next day. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, so we went back and forth three times. I had the three and a half hours of uh, mental paralysis where she literally sat there and held my hand and my head was spinning and you know, all these thoughts were going through my head. One, 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 one thing, none of which had anything to do with the other. And every now and then she'd break in and say, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? (laughs) And I would say, no, 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 we're not talking about tomorrow. I'm not entertaining that. I'm not going home. No. And what made it real at the end was she said, look, the visiting hours are almost over. I have to get your shoe size. I have to get your uh, clothing sizes is, you know, we got to buy a suit for you. It was a ton of work to do as far as the media and that made it real. But of course, you know, a different fear went in my head, which was that I thought something was going to happen between that day and the next and the DA was going to change her mind.
0: Oh yeah. So it's, it's when you get that little kind of the, the light at the end of the tunnel and it's in touching distance, you're like something's going to happen because you can't help think that with obviously, obviously what's happened. You're like something's, someone's against me, you know, something's going to happen. So you, yeah. mean, you mentioned there about, the, obviously, the media, you had to get a suit for the media, you know, that sort of stuff. Was this, when you got released, did this gather more media attention?
1: Oh, of course. It got a huge amount of media attention. Yeah, absolutely. And I I get everything I ever wanted to say in 16 years but could never get anyone to hear. It all kind of came out, and so I spoke for two, nice. two and a half hours off the cuff.
0: Really? So you did you not hold back? No, I did not hold back on anything. <laughs> I don't play. You, you have to be fair. Be, yeah. <laughs> how many? How many times did you stop yourself from swearing? You know what I mean, like effing and blinding and giving no, it. No,
1: I, I really no. I, I really wasn't cursed. It really didn't no. come through my mind to where it was a uh, challenge not to do it. No.
0: Because I tell you what, I'll be, I'll be calling every everyone under the under the sun, the the any sort of name under the sun. I'll be gone crazy. So you've, uh, you've got a lot more uh, yeah. spit than I have.
1: I hear you. I hear you. But, you know, that kind of launched me, that moment kind of launched me as an advocate. So uh, from there, it was a light bulb went off and I figured, all right, well, I, I can be I can I can speak. I can be an advocate without necessarily being a lawyer. And so I did that for five years uh, speaking. Uh, I was I caught on as a weekly columnist. I was doing speaking engagements across the country. I was regularly meeting with elected officials. I was uh, doing uh, you know media interviews, trading privacy for awareness. Uh, It was hard to reintegrate. Uh, It was awkward when I'd meet up with members of my extended family because I knew who they were and they knew who I was, but I was a different person. So were they. Technology was different. So cell phones, GPS, internet, culture was different. Cities and towns didn't look alike. So it all felt like I was in a parallel world. Psychological after effects to deal with the experience. There was a stigma having been wrongfully incarcerated. I was released with nothing. It took five years to get any financial compensation. and so. Uh, at one point, I was a couple of weeks away from being in a homeless shelter. Wow!
0: Uh,
1: but Mercy College, which gave me a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree, they also allowed me to live on campus. Uh, I got a master's degree from John Jay College. My thesis is on wrongful conviction costs and reform. And after five years, I did receive some financial compensation. So I used some of the money to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. You know, and we have been able to free eleven people who were wrongfully imprisoned. And we. Help pass three laws aimed at run for conviction prevention. I'm an advisory board member of It Could Happen to You, which um, the foundation is part of, and we're able to pass an additional five laws. So we're currently doing policy work in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. I'm active in all uh, three chapters. And at some point, uh, I felt like it was not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to sit at the defense table, represent some of the people. So I made a foray into law school and I became uh, an attorney in pursuit of the dream of exonerating others as a lawyer.
0: Fantastic. I mean, that's such a redemption uh, bit to come after because you've been through so much when you were in and a lot of people would, I, I would imagine the, the, the transition to come out of the prison for such a long time, possibly, and, and again, at such a young age, you know, because they always say that the the teenage and 20s is probably the... the yeah, it's pivotal your formative age. years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the sure, best for out. sure. So, coming out and it. Made it
1: that- I was just going to say it made it that much harder because I had never before lived on my own. I You know, I had not had a driver's license. I never went shopping, never wrote a check, never had a balance of budget. So it had those uh, particular challenges for me, for sure.
0: I mean, during that time as well, you, you came out and you had these, these kind of challenges to deal with. What would you say was your motivation to kind of get, go forward and keep going? Because a lot of people with, who've been in that situation were just being, another statistic, you know, as you mentioned before, you nearly were homeless and you could have went into a different way of thinking. What was your motivation to keep going?
1: Well, after I came home, well, you asking me how do I keep going while I was incarcerated? Or are you asking me why I decided to become an advocate after I was exonerated?
0: Well, after you were exonerated, when you got released, you know, because as I say, I mentioned that a lot of people would have yes. kinda just gone into. Yeah, the sure. Sure.
1: Well, I mean, I, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, my mission in life is to free people like me and prevent it from happening and fight for some broader justice reform like I talk about in Conviction where I talked about a lot of disturbing things I saw up close and personal as far as the need for parole reform and, you a know, reduction of, you know, prisoner on prisoner violence and verbal abuse by guards and uh, prison reform and college education for prisoners and compassionate release. So I saw all those things, uh, elderly people in prison that, that disturbed, disturbed me. And I knew that, you know, what happened to me was not rare and, Uh, this just I make sense of everything that happened to me that's my mission in the world and so with that I have some I keep my sanity which is a great place to start (laughs) and then uh, I have meaning in life and it's healing and it's cathartic and I have some inner peace about me Uh, I'm not uh, angry or bitter because I want to enjoy my life as much as I can and I can't do that if I'm if I'm angry or bitter, or if I lost so much already as is, why would I want to, win? in effect, lose the rest of my life? If I was angry or bitter, I wouldn't be harming the people who did this. I would really be the only loser in that scenario. So, and the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take the energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work that I do.
0: Oh God, that's such, it's such an amazing mindset you've got there, to be fair, Jeff. It's, it's cause a lot of, I can imagine you must have felt you've been battling against these sort of like kind of uh, feelings of like hate and like kind of vengeance and all that sort of revenge and all that sort of stuff. But you've went in a different avenue. You've got revenge, but in the proper way by right. doing it the right way, by helping other people and going forward and actually do make a difference, which is, I'll probably say a thousand million times more fulfilling than you could have done it the wrong way. Oh,
1: 100%, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I was angry the first week I was home, but uh, but then, you know, it, it nearly destroyed me. And I realized I, I can't do this. I have to let this go. And that's how I adopted that mindset that I, uh, that, that, that I mentioned. But, you know, the formula, I think, for overcoming adversity is you have goals, have a realistic plan. Uh, there's no reasons why you can't do something. There's only reasons why Uh, something might be harder Uh, work really hard and uh, never give up now remember and remember you're about to give up just remember that could be the key moment where you're about to have your breakthrough and uh, but if you so just keep going even though you can't continue anymore just to see what happens on the other side and when you do survive when you do overcome reach back and help similarly situated people and do some work on a preventative side and in that way your, your suffering can count for something it can be healing cathartic it can make the world a better place and uh, i know that you know it can apply uh say somebody who's a domestic abuse survivor or someone who's homeless or some debilitating illness or a sexual assault survivor uh someone discriminated against someone who's experienced racism or you know, you you plug in the challenge, you plug in the adversity, and it can apply uh, to that. And that's really the way that we take difficult circumstances and we uh, turn them around and
0: get it going and make a difference. That's yes. absolutely fantastic mindset. A fant- what, what a message that is! You just came out with there absolutely fantastic. So anyone who's listening to this, listen to what Jess said there and take that on board. Just because stuff's happened doesn't mean you can't do that. Keep plugging through and never give up you know I mean I think you're a massive advocate Jeff to be honest but never giving up and actually standing up and making a difference and you're such an inspiration to a lot of different people out there you're you you, you've realized that there was a situation that was wrong you proved you you you, you're in a, a horrible situation it wasn't your fault instead of being horrible about it you stood up and you wanted to make change and I think that's do you know I think that's what we need in this world right now is people like yourself I, I I'm, don't want to kind of embarrass you right now but it's people like yourself that, that this world needs with people instead of causing harsh and harm is actually doing something about it and changing how we are in the situation society and what we're going through and try and make it for the better if that makes sense
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is true. That's, that's what I'm you know, trying to do. And at the same time, you know, my head's the right size, you know, if my feet <laughs> is firmly on the floor and I'm just me, I'm just Jeff, you know, but it's, that's I'm amazing. just a tool in the struggle and trying to maximize my, uh, maximize my impact.
0: Fantastic. So, so Jeff, you're talking about your foundation, where can people find you? What where, where, where can people find you? You have to listen to this.
1: Sure. on my website, www.deskovic.org, there is a web form there, people can uh, email me through. Uh, I do have a public figure page on Facebook, I'm on Instagram and uh, and LinkedIn. You know, uh, my ultimate dream here is to have a chapter of the foundation in each state and ultimately in each country. I, I really see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue. And, you know, we'll be able to expand as public support for for our work allows us uh, to do that. We do have a uh, crowdfunding page on the website, Patreon. And, uh, you know, imagine if uh, 25,000 people, you know, decided to, you know, help free wrongfully convicted people, donate $3 to $5 or whatever amount they can afford on a recurring monthly basis. And that would really give us, you know, close to a million dollar budget. We could... Three more people, we could hire the, a digital personnel to do that. And we could pursue policy changes beyond just in New York, Pennsylvania, California, we could
0: expand it to some other States. Makes sense. Definitely. Definitely. And also you've got, um, your documentary, which is, uh, on Amazon yes. prime.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I encourage people to check that out. It's called conviction and within the next world, um, am assuming within the next, uh, that was a Freudian slip by the way. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So within the next year, Hopefully, you know, Gia uh, has um, will unfold a an hour and a half hour and a half uh, longer version of Conviction, which will feature people in it talking other than me, and it'll 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 fill in more information about my case. So that's one thing that I really like about Conviction is Gia took a unique angle to it, which was uh, to decide to focus in on my advocacy work and life post exoneration rather than uh, doing some deep dive into the case. And so in the larger, bigger version, you'll hear more from the investigator who connected me to the Innocence Project, the attorney there, uh, one of the people in there who worked, uh, helped convince them to take my case. You'll hear from my family and other key, uh, other key people involved in my story. And yeah, it'll. I'm literally looking forward to that. And at some point, you know, at some point would love, love to be able to get a book deal and to be able to get a movie deal and to, have the story, you know, reach people through additional artistic mediums, maybe a one-man show or a musical or or whatever other uh, known or unknown uh, methods of reaching people. Look, I want to get the story out. We raise awareness about wrongful conviction. That helps till the soil in terms of the policy changes. Uh, To some extent, as go I, as goes my foundation, and to some extent, as goes the issue of wrongful conviction. So it's all in that spirit that I do seek to you know, uh, enlarge in my uh, profile. I have been able to do some speaking engagements and uh, I meet with governmental officials in other countries. I've been able to do that in Argentina and in the country of Armenia. And so I hope to get a chance to uh, do some tours and other, uh, other countries, you know, doing presentations, and again, meeting, meeting with governmental officials doing some media, because again, this is a worldwide problem. And hey, if you're out there, if you're a person of means, or if you have a higher uh, pro public profile, a social media profile, if your company engages in corporate philanthropy, however you can help the mission, please reach out to me. Uh, and, and help me to make the, make this dream uh, as big as we can possibly uh, get it. And I want us all towards making a, a difference. So I want to just share quickly as I wrap up. Uh, you know, I work about 50, 60 hours a week. I, I don't get paid for that. You know, this, so 100% of whatever is donated would go towards freeing people and preventing this from happening. So I'm free. It, it, it's, it's not about me anymore. Really, it's about the people that I metaphorically left behind
0: fantastic Jeff well Jeff it's been an absolute pleasure having you on you're a complete inspiration to um the well the, are we going to see the human race that's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna embarrass you again but I'm looking forward to seeing obviously the the great work they're going to be doing in the next few years uh, um we should yeah. catch up again soon and see catch up and see what's happening and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on show so thank you so much
1: thank you for having me on looking forward to hearing from you